An insider's take now on how Mr. Trump actually won. This is how politics is waged this day. These are the meme wars in action. And the president has the most powerful platform for propaganda. Facebook has come under fire for its role in last year's election. So is this really about marketing? Is that what political campaigns are about these days? Welcome to For What It's Worth, a podcast where we break down the online race for the White House. I'm Tara McGowan, founder and CEO of Acronym, a progressive nonprofit organization that's committed to building progressive power online. In the final sprint of the 2020 presidential election, I'm bringing onto the pod some of the sharpest political strategists I know who've been working tirelessly behind the scenes to reach, persuade, and mobilize millions of voters to deliver what we hope will be a resounding and indisputable victory for Democrats up and down the ballot this November. My guest today comes from the other side of the aisle, but is doing this work and has been for quite some time. Uh, Sarah Longwell, welcome to the pod. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course, it's great to see you. So you're real busy. Yeah, you're real busy. (laughs) We're both real busy. Um, And probably for the first time, these past few years in our careers are on the same team, which is what I'm really excited to talk about and and how we certainly met. But just to to get more specific about it, uh, you run a political consulting shop that you started. You are the publisher of The Bulwark, which is a anti-Trump digital news outlet that you started with Bill Crystal. Is that the appropriate way to describe the bulwark? Yeah, it's sort of the never Trump resistance magazine. Uh, you could, which you is could call us that. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, you're also the founder of the nonprofit organization Defending Democracy Together and the affiliated super PAC Republican Voters Against Trump. I am really excited to have you on the pod. Um, obviously, uh, we talk a lot on this podcast about uh, the online war for the White House in this election and what happens online, which we're definitely going to get to. But I want to start uh, to talk a, a little bit more about how you got into the work that you're doing in this election cycle. You're a lifelong Republican. Um, but you have been, uh, and according to, to my research, one of the earliest and most publicly outspoken Republicans against Trump. And I would love to hear how, uh, I don't even know if you would call it a transition. I'm curious to hear how you would call it. But how did you decide to speak out? And was that a really difficult decision as it seems that it would be? Yeah, I mean, you know, so I... I had these sort of two parts of the work that I was doing prior to 2016. One is that um, I had a senior role at a conservative policy shop, um, communications firm. That's my background. I'd been there for 15 years. I was a senior vice president. Thought I would just take the firm over at some point. That was kind of my trajectory. But I also did a lot of work uh, in the LGBT space. And so I had, you know, I was the first female national board chair of the Log Cabin Republicans. And so I had sort of gotten comfortable with, I'd always worked in the conservative sort of ecosystem, um, but I also was gay and therefore was comfortable kind of pushing back on certain elements of the right. And so I'd gotten comfortable a long time ago with like everybody being mad at me. <laughs> like, I was just like, you know, gay people were mad at me for being a Republican. Republicans, you know, didn't like that you were gay and we're never gonna let you into CPAC. And like, that was just the kind of space that I occupied. And I had just grown comfortable with that. And so, you know, when Donald Trump showed up, you know, 2015 was such a funny time because I was kind of like, this is our moment. You know, we are going to have Marco or Jeb or somebody who has a slightly more forward looking 
view of the Republican Party. And we're finally going to get past, past a lot of this socially conservative baggage that's been holding the party back. And we're going to start thinking about what is an affirmative plan on health care. And, you know, rather than just saying climate change doesn't exist, we're going to have a plan that is free market oriented about how we're going to address climate change. Like I, you know, we're going to think about things like school choice and, you know, and, 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 and income inequality, you know, guys like Paul Ryan, who were talking about income inequality, we were going to have solutions. And that was, that was the, the part of the party that I felt myself um, having some kinship with. And little did I, I know. I feel like also I have to stop you there because the laundry list of like policy changes and positions you just listed rattled off. I feel like most of our listeners would be like confounded that those could be possible in a Republican platform today. Yeah, well, today, I mean, like, it's funny because they're just, look, there's a, and we've learned a lot in the intervening four years. I've learned a lot about, I think, what is a chasm of difference between, I think, those of us who are kind of DC Republicans who are really policy oriented and we're thinking about what a forward looking party was going to be versus um, a lot of the voters who said, hey, I want to build a wall between us and Mexico, which is not where a lot of the people that I surrounded myself with um, were. And, uh, and I think, you know, nobody was as shocked in 2016 as sort of institutional DC Republicans that Donald Trump somehow managed to best. I mean, that's funny if you go back to 2015, it's just like how many like acceptable at the time Republicans there were in that group. Uh, and how there were like 17. There was, it was, it was like, yeah, it's like, it's funny primaries. because now it's, we all just remember the like Democrat. A ago. Yeah, yeah. We all just remember the Democratic primary being this like, you know, clown car cavalcade of people where the Republicans did that first. And, and it was actually that dynamic that allowed Donald Trump to happen because what happened was you kind of split the normal-ish Republican vote among Scott Walker and Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio and Chris Christie. And those guys were all knifing each other up until the end. And it left Donald Trump kind of alone in his burn it all down lane and, and allowed him to squeak through with this sort of 30% plurality and then ultimately hijack the party. And so I watched all of this happen with horror um, and, and it's funny because, you know, I think for people who, who aren't as familiar with how things were going on the right, you know, after Mitt Romney lost, like there was this full on autopsy that the Republican party did about like how we were going to start attracting Hispanic voters, and black voters and women and like a new generation of Republicans. And it was gonna, you know, we weren't going to just be the party of no, there was really was this like affirmative plan that is just like sitting in the ash heap of history, like never to be heard from again. A moment of reckoning that could have gone in such different directions, and it went in the direction of Trumpism. That's it's right. And wild. just couldn't have predicted, you know, and I think that there's this, this now this like residual argument between the right and the left, or even like, even like the never Trumpers and the progressive left, where people are like, this was always what it was going to be. Like this, you guys laid the predicate for this. And this is how it was going to go. And then there's a bunch of us who were like, no, we really didn't think this was how it was going to go. Like we had this totally different sort of path that we thought was, you know, good for the country and responsible and was addressing some of the most pressing um, challenges of the moment in ways that, you know, were more sort of ideologically aligned where we were. But anyway, different universe, back on earth too, all gone. Um, and so when Trump happened, here's the thing, everybody spoke at it first. Like everyone I knew was never Trump in 2016. The hard part was after Trump got elected 
And one by one, this like flesh-eating virus came through D.C. and snatched the bodies of every Republican I knew who either did one of two things, either went from being never Trump to a pro-Trump cheerleader or just like hunkered down and said like, and I will not be talking again for four years. Like they pray for it to be over, but they're not saying anything. And so, you know, I, I, when I tell people the story of how everything sort of got started, what I, I started going to these rooms of sad Republicans. Like there were these meetings, like real meetings in, in like basements and boardrooms of Republicans who were like, what, what just happened and what are we going to do? This is funny because I was like kind of a unknown to anybody in these rooms, um, but I was interested in trying to figure out like who was thinking about this and what could we do. And there were people there like Bill Crystal and Mona Sharon and Linda Chavez and a whole bunch of people that I had grown up watching on TV and had read, you know, um, the articles that they had written. And it gave me this sense of like, wait a minute, there's real people with big platforms who do want to do something, but don't really know what to do. And nobody knows who I am, and I'm not the least bit famous, but I at least know how to start organizations, how to do research, how to build things. And so we sort of all came together and said, okay, well, let's- And with that thick skin you mentioned, being unafraid and conditioned to be the one that is going to say the thing that's going to make a lot of people on all sides unhappy. Yeah, yeah. That, like, I mean, you can't, that's a huge part, I'm sure of that, because for the folks who didn't know what to do, right, it's like, it's a, that's a lot of risk to their platform or their reputation. Yeah, although I tell you, a lot of my, I honestly think a lot of these people had more to lose than I did. I mean, I, because I was, you know, sort of an unknown person, it's not like I was giving up my magazine. Like Bill Crystal lost the magazine that he built. Um, and a bunch of these people had book deals or Fox contracts or all this stuff. And like that all evaporated. Like there's this thing out there on the right where people accuse everybody of there being this like right wing grift uh, from the never Trumpers. And I'm not saying that that doesn't exist anywhere, but like in terms of the people that I was dealing with in the beginning, everybody was losing stuff. Everybody was giving things up. And so um, for me, what I- Right, well, that was before, long before it became popular, right? This is way before yeah. anyone knew of the Lincoln Project or people were getting viral retweets or cable hits because they were coming out. That's where, this is when it was hard. Right, no, really this is hard. when everyone was running in the opposite direction. And there was this group of us that said, that basically like, well, we can, we can push back on Trump from the right, like from the sort of old principled positions because he was he was saying all of these things that ran counter to my own version of what I thought a Republican Party would stand for, which was like, we were affirming of immigration. We thought immigration was good. Everybody I knew was pro-immigration and pro-free trade. And like, you know, this guy's coming in talking about building a wall and closing down, you know, trade with everybody. And not to mention, not to mention, look, I was 18 in 1998, which meant like a lot of my political, like coming into my own political understanding was done around like the Clinton impeachment. And, and so everybody, you know, back then, if you watch old clips of like Mitch McConnell or Lindsey Graham, just getting on their high horse about morality, how character is destiny and character counts and matters. That was like super ingrained in the party that, in the culture of the party that I thought um, I was getting involved with. And to watch it just puff of smoke, go away, just evaporate, was like this actually crushing 
realization, especially because so many of these people, you know, Rick Santorum or any of these folks who had been the culture warriors against gay marriage, who I'd been in good faith arguing with for years and saying like, wanting to make sure that like their religious convictions were respected in the conversations around gay rights and, and things. And, and to have had, to have taken them seriously at their word about how much their faith mattered and that's why they couldn't support gay marriage, to then just like jump on board this thrice married adulterer who was like paying off porn stars was basically more than I could handle. It was just too much hypocrisy. This is, but this is the contrast between, between you and so many folks in the Republican Party that I, I just respect so much. It's that you have a core and you didn't abandon it because of who got elected into power, right? And, and I think that that is the easy thing to do. And I think in, in the state of our politics that are so increasingly polarized, which is why I call you one of the most surprising friends that I've made in this cycle, because I don't have a lot of Republican friends. When you work in Democratic politics, you don't. In fact, you spend a lot of time fighting with other people in the Democratic Party, in the different factions, et cetera, but you're always focused, of course, on like countering the other side. And so what you went through is like, Seeing your party change and associate itself with somebody who seemed not at all like any of the principals or the leaders that you respected and looked up to and got into that work for move in that direction and and obviously had been fighting against Democrats your whole career. <laughs> also, like that's a, an incredibly scary and brave position to be in that you stood your ground. And I think now it has become popular for there is a, an anti-Trump or a never Trump movement, but it really feels like you were you were really the pioneer of it in a lot of ways, um, whether you were more well known then or not. And I just I, I have so much respect for you for that, because I think that's an incredibly hard thing to do. Um, and it shows your integrity. And I think that it also demonstrates what most Americans, whether they identify as Republicans or Democrats, feel about our politics and our political system and our politicians, which is that they're full of shit. And they're going to go wherever the power and the money and the influence is. And that's not where voters want our politics to be. They want to be represented. They want to be heard. They want, they can disagree on the issues, but like they want basic things like healthcare and, and equal rights and opportunity and good school and education for their kids and stuff. And yet the discourse and the polarization of the parties have, have led to the polarization of our electorate in a way that has put us here where it's like, Trumpism or nothing. And I feel like, you know, what what happened in the Republican primary in 2015, 2016 also could have happened in the Democratic primary. It didn't in certain ways, right? Joe Biden is the nominee. Um, he was one of, if not the most moderate Democrat running in the primary. And so um, I do think that gives uh, also a lot of uh, ability for more people to come in and away from Trump to vote for Biden. But I just, I, I think it was so brave. It took so, it took guts. And, um, and I think that it's also just such a demonstration of your character that you stood by it and you brought others along with you. What you've done is essentially take your experience and how you saw Trump and what was happening to the Republican Party after he was elected. And you you turned it into an organization and a program to give voice to other Republicans like you who didn't know how the hell this happened and and did not see themselves or their values or principles in, in Trump. So tell me and tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that was going on in the sad Republican rooms uh, that I was telling you about is that that people were floored. People didn't understand what was going on with voters. And everybody was sort of speculating, right? Like, what is happening? And I was like, 
there's an actual answer to this question. Like we should go talk to voters and we should figure out like what is going on. And so one of the first things I raised money to do when I started Defending Democracy Together, uh, the C4 in very early 2018, and it was sort of getting started at the end of 2017, was like to do research. And so I started doing focus groups with what I called reluctant Trump voters at the time. So people who had not voted for Donald Trump in the primary, but they'd voted for him in the general to try to understand like just what was going on with people. And the thing that became clear to me quickly was that, um, and and I should have, we sort of knew it, but but it became clear listening to voters that voters would tell you, I did not vote for Donald Trump. I voted against Hillary Clinton. The sheer muscle memory in center-right voters, even moderate ones, against Hillary Clinton was so severe that she just couldn't pick up a lot of these swing voters that Joe Biden is picking up now. And now you can, there are a million reasons for that. Some you might think some of them are good. You might think some of them were bad, um, but it just is what it is in terms of where voters heads were. Um, the other thing is, is like, this had honestly not quite as occurred to me as how real this phenomenon is, but that like, I have never watched an episode of The Apprentice in my life, but all of these voters had watched The Apprentice. And so they would tell you how Donald Trump was this consummate businessman. And, and they had spent years with him in their living room. They felt like they knew him and that he was deeply successful and this vision of American success that they like aspired to. And they thought he would be good for the jobs and good for the economy, even though they thought he was kind of a jerk and they didn't like some of the stuff, but also they had this sense that he would be better once he was in office, that the, that the office of the presidency would be transformative. But they hated him. And so, you know, at this point, we're like a year in and they're like, this guy's terrible. <laughs> and that didn't mean that they were in completely out on him, but it meant that like seeing him as president and him not changing and not becoming what they thought he would, like people, especially women. It was just the, the, the divide in gender and the divide in education was like immediately apparent. And so I started to think about a couple of things. One, could we primary him? Was there enough Republican voters that you could actually stand up a primary? And two, you know, how I was like, basically from the jump, I wanted to think about how could you beat this guy in 2020? And uh, so I knew that there were a lot of disaffected Republican voters out there. But then right around this time, the special counsel uh, gets launched. And so that was really the first opportunity we had to really do something. And we launched Republicans for the Rule of Law. And when we stood up Republicans for the Rule of Law, what, what was great about it was it was kind of like planting a flag that says, here we are. We are, the, we are the Republican internal opposition to Trump. And by doing it, it was just like 100,000 people signed up immediately, all these disaffected Republicans. And one of the things that we did, and it sort of goes to the digital conversation that was important to us is, I knew the whole time that there were going to be a lot of people on the left who were like, I like these Republicans who are standing up to Trump. Like, I want to sign up for their list. And we were constantly keeping them off our list. We were like, this is not about Democrats, right? This is about finding, because it, it occurred to me pretty early, like, okay, if we can find a big enough cohort of disaffected Republicans, you know, part of me was like, maybe that's for something in a post-Trump era you can use to like build something new. Maybe it's, you know, a big enough group that you can push back against Trump. Like nothing was in focus yet, but this is how I was thinking about it in the early days was like plan a flag, try to find all these disaffected Republicans. And the thing was, it wasn't like the never Trumpers in DC, right? The people who were signing up were, they tended to be kind of like, 
right-leaning independents or moderate Republicans who, you know, were kind of John McCain type voters and who just were completely repulsed by Donald Trump and were like, what is going on here? What do we do? And so anyway, this was like, I was like, well, we can build something with this. We can start with this. And that is uh, where we started. But over time, uh, you had to basically take your sad Republican uh, meeting rooms and bring it <laughs> to voters in all of these states who maybe didn't have them. Yeah. And who wouldn't have identified themselves as like never Trump. You know, that's like not, right. that's like a thing that people say to talk about those of us in DC. These are more like suburban Republicans who are like, what is going on here with this guy? This is terrible. One of the things that that I could see in the focus groups clearly too, was that a lot of the women, there's like this first tranche of women who had voted for him and who were like, now they were like radicalized and out. They were like this, I can't believe I voted for him. Um, and, and they were part of, it was sort of a harbinger of what you were going to see in 2018 with a lot of those suburban women just turning out for like Abigail Spanberger and Mikey Sherrill and um, Alyssa Slotkin and, and kind of this revolt. And, and it's weird because, you know, you remember Donald Trump won a plurality of white women, which everybody, remember like in the, in the postmortems, people were like, what? Women voted for this guy? Well, and I remember in 16, we were like, women are going to decide this election on the left. And we were like, ro- like roaring about it. And then they did. And right. in the bad way. Right. Exactly. Uh, exactly. But they, it, but they, there's this, like, there was like enough of them that switched pretty quickly. But that's why, that's why I tell people about, like, people are like, how is that possible? But it is that combination of sort of the Hillary Clinton unwillingness and this, like, celebrity uh, that he had that, that allowed him to overcome what was obviously manifest on fitness. Well, and I wonder if there was also a layer of it where it was like, you know, the, the staunch voters who turn out every election also, like like many of us, didn't believe he would win. Oh, totally. So yeah, they checked the box because they didn't want to check it for Hillary Clinton, but they certainly didn't think that it would actually result in him winning. Oh, I hear it all the time so, I, that I, they didn't think he would the win. The remorse. Yep. And so after... Uh, 2018, you know, I sort of turned my attention to, okay, well, how do we beat them in 2020? Like, what are we going to do? And and I've been testing a lot of messages through Republicans for the rule and every rule of law and the work we were doing there. And I was becoming a little disillusioned by the fact that people weren't particularly responsive to messages about democracy or the rule of law, like these sort of esoteric, I mean, they're not that esoteric, they're pretty fundamental, but like it just didn't move people. And also even, and also especially with the people I was trying to get to, the like scary voiceovers and the hard attacks on Trump, like that didn't work. And that was becoming increasingly clear in the research that I was doing in the focus groups. That works. That works for the Democratic base. Yeah. That's who that works for. It works for Democratic voters and funders and activists on the grassroots side. And it's cathartic, right? And it's necessary for the base. But it's it's like our version on the left's red meat, the way that Trump uses dog whistle politics and 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 all of the fear-mongering he does that to feed his base his core in all of the testing we do online we've in, we've seen over the past 4 years that just straight polarizing partisan messages don't work whether it's on one side or the other for most voters um it's it's really interesting that the the democracy narrative doesn't work but it's not super surprising because the majority of these voters 
are low political knowledge. Whether they went to college or not, they don't, they're not spending their time thinking about the institutions. And frankly, the reputation of the institutions is not good on either side. So maybe that that's a part of it. But yeah. Oh, it's no, it's definitely a part of it. And I think that one of the things that I've learned so much in the in the past few years, and one of them, you know, I was always in the messaging business. So it's not like I was, you know, brand new to everything, but on politics the divide between what people think matters in Washington or even the information that people have. And I remember one of the focus groups I did was in Columbus, Ohio, and it was like the day after Helsinki. And the whole of DC is engulfed in flames because, you know, and, and, and Republicans are, fur- you know, so, like institutional Republicans are upset uh, because Donald Trump has stood on the stage with Vladimir Putin and sided against America's intelligence community. I am beside myself about this fact. You think it should be, it should be career ending, 25th Amendment time. And I was in this focus group and the moderator, I was like, okay, so ask them about Helsinki. The moderator says, so what does everybody think about what Donald Trump did yesterday? And everyone just like stares blankly. And, and he's like, well, you know, when he was meeting with Vladimir Putin and everyone just keeps staring at him blankly. And finally, he's like, so he stood on the stage with Vladimir Putin and sided against America's intelligence community in the case of Russian hacking. And people are kind of like, oh, yeah, well, he has to meet with world leaders. I mean, that's his job. I mean, and it was just like, oh, wait a minute. Like, and now now that I've like, this is very clear to me, sometimes I'll just test whatever the hot thing is in Washington. Like, did anybody in my focus group see the Jonathan Swan interview that, you know, that's all over Twitter and everyone's like, who is Jonathan Swan and what are you talking about? You know, and I think that that is just deeply important to when you're doing this kind of work is to understand like how important, like how, even the message isn't anywhere close to as important as the messenger, which was the essence of what I learned doing all the work that I was doing. And it's what led me to ultimately the project that we have now, which is Republican voters against Trump, all of these smash and grab ads against Trump get you nowhere. But we actually looked at, I looked at moveon.org who had this real voter voices campaign. And as just a sheer like respect for the practitioner element of me, I looked at it and said, this is a good campaign. Like this is right. Um, And I had done a like little bit of a version of it in 2018 where I had found Republican women who were voting for the Democratic congressional candidates like Mickey Sherrill and Mikey Sherrill and Abigail Spamberger. But, you know, we'd like filmed them and they told this whole narrative and it was like B-roll and everything and they were good. And then they tested well and it was fine. But like to do it at scale, and to do it in a way that is deeply persuasive, I was like, move on has the right idea. Just get them unvarnished, uncut, speaking from the heart, talking about why as lifelong Republicans, they can't support Donald Trump. And that was that was the movement I wanted to build. And um, But I was deeply skeptical we'd be able to, because it's one thing to get a bunch of Democrats to talk about why they support other Democratic candidates on camera, to get Republicans to publicly go against tribe, right? It wasn't just signing up for our mailing list. It wasn't just popping off on a social media post now and then. Like they were going to put themselves uh, out there so they could potentially use in television commercials. And um, and I needed, I needed hundreds and hundreds of them. And so I wasn't sure if we could pull it off, but we had these great lists that we'd built from doing all the other work we've been doing. And we started reaching out to people, polling them, asking them who they voted for, asking them what they were thinking about going forward and just trying to understand people. We had a lot of third party voters in our groups too. So, you know, and we had a lot of Trump voters, but we had a lot of people who'd like ditched for Johnson or McMullen. Um, they made up a big 
portion of, of our people. And we just started reaching out to them saying, will you make one of these videos? And it took us months to get the first hundred. It was a lot of hand-to-hand combat. COVID happened like right in the middle of it, which actually ended up being like a little bit helpful because once people were like trapped inside and like getting used to doing more video stuff, it got actually a little easier to yeah, do it. Yeah, from a production standpoint, this fit. And I do, I want to double click, move on Real Voter, Real Voices project. It's something uh, that they did in the midterms in 2018. And really what it was, was a huge uh, advertising program where the ads were all just real voters, selfie videos explaining why they were voting for X candidate or because of X issue. And um, and they targeted those videos to people within the communities where those voters lived. So it was local. It was personal. It was low production quality, which actually performs a lot better typically online. And it was it was really smart. And they did a ton of testing. And, and we've we've done a lot of that work, too, at Acronym. And so I, I knew instantly when I saw your approach to this work, and it doesn't feel sexy, right? It's not a glossy viral ad <laughs> that everyone's going to share in that. Chris Hayes and Rachel Matter are going to put on their shows necessarily, although they have put many of yours. I've been very glad to see. But it's not that. It doesn't look like a movie trailer. It doesn't like, you know, get your sort of adrenaline going the way traditional political ads do. And yet that's more and more what people want to see and hear. They want to see people like them and they want to understand that there is a that there are people like them who feel the way that they do and that's that's a topic i wanted to talk to you about because it really is at the core of everything you've done and it's permission structure it's it's granting people permission it's showing them that they're not alone with the way they feel about this president or our politics or an issue. And it's really powerful. And I feel like in the media environment we live in today, too, you brought up such an important piece of, of this election cycle um, and our politics generally right now, which is that the majority of voters are not partaking in the national conversation that political strategists like you and I are, that media, journalists, reporters, pundits are. The conversation could not be more different in terms of what voters are talking about in their communities with each other and what information reaching them. And and that's, I mean, why we started Acronym was because there really wasn't communication infrastructure to reach lower political knowledge voters, who, especially younger voters who do not watch TV. They don't watch cable. They don't watch the evening news, et cetera. And so being able to put people like them who share their values or opinions in front of them where they're getting their information, that's the recipe. It's it's not rocket science, but you, to your point, it wasn't easy um, to find these people and get them to, to, you know, have the courage to do this. But now you're at how many? We're how many videos we're over now? A thousand. Um, over which, a thousand. Which to That's get, incredible. Yeah, which to get a Republican to sort of go against tribe. But like what's cool about it is that you kind of build a new tribe, right? It is a tribe of people. And our, they, it's great. Like we have these town halls and they all, they like know each other now. And they they like tag each other and talk to each other on Twitter. And, and it's, it's great. But, you know, building a place for people to say, I am a Republican, but I am voting for Joe Biden in this moment. Um, that represents, and all of the polling shows it, that there is this like 4% roughly defection rate among Trump voters, um, which is exactly who we're targeting with these soft Trump voters, Most, a lot of them women, a lot of them college-educated suburban voters, and also these third-party voters um, who ditched their vote uh, for third party last time, but who are overwhelmingly breaking for Biden this time. Like Those are our audiences. That's exactly who we're targeting this information to. And so Look, I'm not saying that's all us. I mean, a lot of it, Trump, Donald Trump's doing a bang up job, you know, driving people away. But it does, because now I've listened to so many voters in the focus groups, it's just clear people do need that sense that they're not alone. 
that like that safety and numbers thing is real. They want to know that they're part of some cohort. And that's, it's given them that feeling of, you know, because the thing that I was so worried about in doing a project like this is that one of the things people don't talk about as much, but is so present, especially if you're like in the never Trump, you think about a lot, the toxic political culture that like the MAGA element has brought. And I'm not saying this doesn't transcend both parties in some way, but like there was a real sense for people who spoke out against Trump that they were attacked, you know, both online viciously, but also like people come in their houses and things like that. And I was like, you know, there's such a, a like a, a, like a low underlying sense of fear for speaking out against Trump. Oh, absolutely. There's, there's vitriol online. You'll get, I mean, immediately bombarded and it's, you know, it's the loud few totally. versus the, the quiet many. And it, we have both experienced it personally, but to be, to be somebody who just wants to, you know, say, look, this isn't the country I want my kids to grow up in, or this is isn't, you know, this isn't the party I believed in or have voted for my whole life, like, and, and be attacked like that. It, it's, it's meant to force you back into your corner and, and not speak out. It is meant to force you back. That's exactly right. Like it is meant to intimidate you. And so having these people sort of having each other's backs and us having their backs and everything else has created such a different environment for them to the point where now we've got billboards up all over North Carolina, Pennsylvania, you know, Arizona, Florida. And it's because people are like, yeah, I'll put my face on a billboard because they know people have their backs. Like the bravery of these people, I just don't want to let this go is like, you know, my bravery. I'm like somebody who lives in Washington. Like I was doing fine before I'm going to do fine later. Like these people are out on a limb in their communities, refusing to be cowed by all of this. And like, it has been the best, most uplifting thing to work on because I get to see people like just like standing up for something every day. And that's been awesome. And that's democracy because they are the ones who get to decide. It's not the elites, the strategists, the pundits, the media. It is actually the voters to be able to do that and give them a sense of community and empowerment. It's incredible. And it it really also, from my perspective, it's it's such a sign of leadership to be able to stand up in any room, whether it's a sad Republican room in D.C. or a focus group in Western Pennsylvania, and be able to say, I'm a Republican and did this. It translates in such a different way than if it were me or a Democratic group or strategist. And I think that's really the magic the program you built. So I really want to know um, what role you think social media has played in the increasing polarization of our politics um, and our elections in this country. And do you think that it has made our country and our politics more polarizing? Or do you just think that um, we'd still be where we are today, It's regardless of what medium people are actually communicating or getting their information on? No, I definitely think it's increased polarization. And the reason is, is that nothing I'm going to say is novel here, but like the people you know in real life. So a lot of these people that, that I talk to who are very clear-eyed about how terrible Trump is, but they sort of can't get like cross the Rubicon and vote for Democrats, it's because they swim in what I would call like a cultural soup of Trumpism. And that is that everybody around them, like they don't sit and watch Fox News. They don't, they don't read Breitbart. They're not, in, they're not like, that's like not their level of engagement, number one. I mean, they might watch like the, the nightly news or something like that to the extent that they're consuming news at all. But their social media feeds are filled with people who do consume Breitbart and do consume Fox News. And those are the people that are around them geographically, and therefore it's their friends and their family and their, their social media acquaintances. And so their feeds become just this 
endless loop of one side of an ecosystem. And that happens on the left too. And it happens in cities too. But I think that that has made us, and then of course people fight. So it's so funny. I was on the, I was doing a focus group the other night and there was a woman who was talking about how upset she was with Trump about all kinds of things, didn't like him. But when he got sick with COVID, she saw people in her social media feed wishing that he would die. And she was going to vote for him again because she was so horrified by people saying that. And like, and that is as normal of a reason as I hear from average people, right? It's not, it's not about healthcare, not about this policy thing. It's because some jerk that they don't like that they, you know, know from a job, you know, said that they thought Trump should die and that horrified them. And therefore they're going to vote for him. And like, this is the way in which trust breaks down and social cohesion breaks down. And like, look, there's all kinds of gifts that the internet has given us. Like it used to be that a gay kid living in Alabama couldn't find other gay people, but now it's really easy. And you know, you can, it can change your life in positive ways, but like crappy people can find each other too, or we can all just be our worst selves uh, on the internet and drive people further apart. So anyway, short answer, yes. Yeah. Well, and it's because the algorithms create that, right? It takes, it roots people in these echo chambers and then those echo chambers had influence on those people, even if to your point, they're not the ones following, watching Fox News or following Breitbart, et cetera. But it, it has a real impact and it's so hard to pull them out of that, right? Because that becomes then, that echo chamber becomes their sense of normal and where their community is. So to your point, they feel like an outsider. And so I, I was so curious to ask you that question because I do feel like we were becoming more polarized either way in terms of our politics, the gridlock that we've seen since Obama was elected in Congress, in the Senate, et cetera. And you know, I do think that Joe Biden is smart because this is who he is and who he's always been in his character to you know really run as a president for all all Americans. And um, a lot of that, a, a lot of politicians who say that it would fall really flat. And I don't think it, it does. I think it's truly genuine from Biden, but that's not representative of our politics today and where a lot of people are. But it's also because there isn't, there aren't many permission structures for people like you and I to be friends or for people like the voters you have done focus groups with in, in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania to find other people like them through a community like Republicans voting against Trump. And so I do feel like there is an element where we have to figure out a way to create more space that is louder and has more voices and more content um, that isn't on either side, like the most polar opposite sides of the political spectrum. And yet the algorithms don't reward pragmatic or content or, or, or values or messaging that isn't salacious in some way, that isn't incredibly woke or incredibly radical or incredibly racist. I, I mean, frankly, that's where I feel like social media's role comes in because it's like, we can create that space. We know that's where a lot of people are, but it doesn't exist on social media. And that that's a real problem. Yeah, because who wants to smash the retweet button for pragmatism? And that is right. Like it just doesn't. Like it's like when you were trying on the on the on the impeachment stuff related to like saving our democracy. That's not. It's it's just not. Uh, it's not sexy enough for uh, for Twitter, unfortunately. But we should make it sexier. That um, is that. Hey, that is our that is our project for the. And I think that look the one one of the things I was talking about this with somebody else the other day that one of the things I'm excited about is that they're in this moment. It's like a silver lining of Trump is that there's been more trust institutionally built across um, a lot of us who've worked in this space. And I think that there, for the first time, is maybe a coalition of people who come from center right and center left and all the way across to more progressive politics 
that are thinking about, hey, like actually our institutions are fragile and actually like democracy itself is fragile. So maybe we should all like put the knives away for a minute and think about what we can do going forward to solve some of these problems that led us to this point. Because I don't think any of us has liked it very much. Well, no, it's felt it's felt like we've been on the deathbed of democracy. Like the entire history of democracy has been flashing before all of our eyes as we're watching it crumble under Trump and his administration. And it truly does. Like it feels so hyperbolic to say. I even hate saying it now, but like I don't know that we're going to have a democracy if Trump wins or steals this election. You and I's lives, the lives of all Americans will look dramatically different. Like the, the difference really couldn't be more stark. And I hate that we've said talking points like that in other elections. It takes the authenticity out of it, but it's, it's real. I hope that you're right. And I, I feel like you, that you are because there has been more dialogue, more discourse, more, more um, partnerships and friendships like ours, where we're able to put aside the, the very, very real differences we have about certain policies and issues and solutions for solving problems in this country to say, like, actually, none of this matters if we don't have a democracy, if we don't have institutions, if we don't have uh, free and fair elections. Like that, that's a totally different war than we're fighting <laughs> if we don't have those things. And so how we come together to protect them is um, it's uh, it's just it's so necessary. So I'm grateful um, that that we're able to do this work and have these conversations. The other thing I wanted to touch on quickly was um, was the role of the media. So as you mentioned, you uh, are the publisher of a, um, a Never Trump magazine, uh, The Bulwark, um, and you had not been in media or journalism before. And I'm curious, do you believe the same way we're talking about kind of our politics getting to a place of more civil discourse and debate and solutions and policymaking, um, which I do hope happens when it comes to the media and the role of the media today, especially as it actually reaches voters, which to your earlier point, mainstream media doesn't. What I'm so curious about your perspective on the future of media and partisan media in particular, do you feel like there is a space for center right, center left discourse? Or do you have to be on either side or or the fake sheen of um, objectivity, which I really don't know exists anymore. And even if you are truly objective, you're going to be called fake news by one side or the other. So I'm curious if you think that that we can evolve to that space again, or if, if it's gone. Yeah, it's a good and big question. I mean, just, I mean, I'm testing one part of that proposition with the bulwark, which is that Look, and I, I'm sort of joking when I call us Never Trump Media, because my hope is that we transcend that to some degree. I mean, it's a bunch of people who come from a center-right perspective and because of that perspective, find Donald Trump to be abhorrent and objectionable and wanted to raise that that those objections, you know, in a in a way that is cogent and and all under one banner. But at the same time, like one of the things that drives me crazy is the way that the incentive structure works with online media. So it's something that I've seen really take over right-wing media. And the fact is the bulwark started and other publications, Trump skeptical publications like the Dispatch, because basically you couldn't stick with the old publications on the right because they had to keep pumping out like pro-Trump clickbait for their audiences. And, you know, because that's how they make money, because that's how, that's they how make media money companies make and the more clicks right. you get. And you're going to get the more clicks based on the most the most aggressively partisan, polarizing, salacious headlines. And so I was basically like, man, can I raise money so that we don't have to live in a clickbait world? Like, can I, and can I set this up so that like we can kind of, and I'm all for corporate stuff, like I'm a Republican, but like when you have people who are like 
you, especially in the news, the, the, the drive for profit in news has like a can have a perverting sense. And so like an influence on the messaging you're putting forward, absolutely. the framing of your news. Absolutely. absolutely. So like my goal is to say not just that we're never Trump, but to, to actually establish our credibility as people who were not beholden in this moment to a political party. And so what I wanted to see is like, is there space on sort of what I guess is even the center right? And a lot of our audience is center left where we're like, we're, we're from the center-right perspective, but we're non-tribal, and we're going to disagree with each other. Like, we're not going to have a party line. Like, we're going to fight internally with each other, and we'll publish people's... Because, like, what I... Just what I have a hunger for, and what there's... And there's been an audience. Like, we have... The Bulwark has been explosive in its growth. I mean, our podcast, our flagship podcast, does 240,000 downloads an episode, you know, a couple million a month. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's And so I've been... It's honestly... I'm proud of a lot of stuff this year, but I might be the proudest of the Bork because I didn't know what I was doing at all. I was just committed to putting out something that felt true in the moment and it's done really well. And that makes me happy because I, it means that there's an audience that, that is looking for that. It's challenging over the long term because we're still all going to be niche publications and, and media is just getting more and more bifurcated as time goes on. And I don't know what the solution to that is, right? Because the fact is, and I see it all the time in the groups, people just work, when they don't work off the same set of facts, it's very difficult for people to find consensus and compromise because they think that the world, they literally are looking like one person saying the sky is green and the other one saying it's purple and no one believes it's blue. That's that's the big challenge and I don't know how to solve it. Probably also why you're so proud of this, I imagine, is because there wasn't a precedent for it or a playbook for it and you found that audience. And so that if anybody's going to solve it or create new models for this work, it's going to be it's going to be folks like you. So, I mean, I, I really hope that Joe Biden wins um, in November, but I also hope that that brings about a lot of opportunity for models and publications like The Bulwark and Career to be able um, to continue to find audience and space and try to change the conversation um, because of those profit models. I think that uh, I believe strongly that we can change them, but it's going to be a lot more difficult um, uh, if things keep going in the direction they've been going. So i um, grateful for all of the innovation that you have brought and the uh, the conversation and the permission structure to bring other Republicans who believe in our country and our democracy and our ability to really get things done, to be able to find them and give them a space to, to have their voices heard. And so I think that is going to make an enormous difference in this election and hopefully the difference we need. Well, I hope so too. But I will also say, you know, um, as somebody who came into a space with a bunch of people who didn't know me and who weren't necessarily necessarily inclined toward trusting the random Republican who showed up to be like, hey, can I help guys? Um, I appreciated that, uh, you know, you've you've gone to bat for me more than once in terms of making sure that people that we, that we were all working together well. And so I appreciate that, too. If people like you and I can't work together, how can we expect voters like you and I to vote for the same candidate? That's that's, right. that's my feeling on that. So um, great, great to partner with you, be friends with you, to know you, and I'm so excited uh, to hopefully be celebrating the same victory at the end of this. And then I'll have to have you back on so we can duke out how things are going to change in the work that we do my God, if we are I lucky enough. <laughs> I cannot wait to fight over something normal. I cannot wait. I know. I look forward to it. Oh, it'd be a dream. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks so much for uh, spending time and uh, keep up the great work. You too.
That's all we have for this week. If you want to take a deeper dive into the state of digital politics, and if you're not already a subscriber to our weekly newsletter, also called For What It's Worth, you can sign up at anotheracronym.org forward slash FWIW. 